Welcome to the Working Mom's Guide to Sanity podcast, your go-to resource for support, advice, and inspiration as you navigate the challenges of balancing your ambitious career dreams and your family. Each week, I'll bring you interviews with powerhouse working moms who'll share their insights on how they manage to find sanity while juggling their demanding jobs and kids. I'm your coach, Elizabeth Pearson. I'm an executive coach for women in male-dominated fields, and boy, have I heard it all. I've experienced a lot. I'm a mother of two young girls, and the women that I interview somehow built these businesses, climbed the ranks of corporate America, and followed their dreams all while being a mother and clinging to their sanity. And you can do it too. Each week, I'll show you how. Welcome to the show. I'm your coach, Elizabeth Pearson. And today's guest is the author of Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Your Power. Her name is Rose Hackman. And my goodness, did we have an insightful conversation. I wasn't familiar with the term emotional labor until a past guest brought it up and really said, you have to talk to Rose about this. Maybe you guys checked out that episode. It was with sex therapist, uh, Dr. Kate. And anyway, she said, you know, you have to have this conversation with Rose because she wrote this book and she spent over seven years researching this term, you know, emotional labor and what is it? So if you're unfamiliar, it can be really any time somebody puts their feelings aside to make somebody else feel more comfortable. And like, hello, who isn't doing that almost every single day? Um, especially women, especially moms, especially, especially working moms, I feel like. So we had a really great conversation. We talked about what role men play in this, why it's actually important for them to help share the load of emotional labor, but also why it's really healthy for them. There were many points where we were very, very passionate about what we were discussing. And I think that's always like, such an amazing episode when somebody just really lives and breathes their work. And Rose is that chick. So I hope you enjoy. Rose Hackman, I am so happy to have you on the show. We were chatting a little bit before I hit record. And I feel like this umbrella of what emotional labor is and what it touches is so huge that I'm really happy to have you here to explain it. I could read the back of your book, like the specific of what you call emotional labor, but I think it's best when you explain it for our audience as to what exactly this is and who is it affecting. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So emotional labor is the editing work of emotions that you will do on yourself in order to have an effect on the emotions of other people. So it's a smile that you will give to the people around you, regardless of whether you're feeling good inside in order to make them feel good inside. In our society, this is a form of work that is highly devalued. It's rendered invisible. And it's also highly feminized, sometimes racialized. This in spite of the fact that what I argue in the book is the fact that emotional labor is incredibly valuable. So it's essential, I argue, not just to our day-to-day -day lives, but for the smooth running of families, communities, societies. This might feel all kind of very generic, but once you really start to understand what emotional labor is and how it's showing up day-to-day -day at work and at home, you suddenly understand that it's a form of work just like any other form of work, physical work, intellectual work, creative work. It's just that emotional labor, emotion work is not something we as of yet give a term to because we really just see it as often women being women and just altruism. And actually it's a form of work just like other forms of work that takes a huge amount of effort, skill and time, energy to be performed. 
I would say too, I mean, like there's the mental bandwidth of always trying to guess, like, what do they want from me? And then providing that. But I also feel like it's a huge spiritual drain because Rose, if we're not being authentic and living in our bodies and what our soul wants to be, which is always honest and authentic, I feel like it's soul sucking to try to be this person that others want so that you can avoid potential retribution. You're, you talk about abuse. I want to talk about that at some point. But wouldn't you say too, that it's like probably slowly s- killing our souls? I mean, I do think that we have reached breaking point. I'm 37. So that makes me a generation of women that I was certainly expected to to go to school, by which I mean, you know, college, university. My mother didn't get to go to university. Her background, it wasn't really something that women did. And so I grew up with this idea that there was, the whole world was my oyster and it was going to be all of these opportunities that maybe my mother or my grandmother's generation didn't get, I was going to get. And you grow up and there's all these subtle and not so subtle forms of inequality that you just come crashing into. Mm. And a lot of those forms of inequality that are subtle and not so subtle go back into emotional labor, which is, if you want to think about it, there's so many different ways of thinking about it. It's effectively living your life for the benefit of other people and not your benefit. We are trained to perpetually put other people's interests ahead of our own, to take the high road, to put other people's needs first. And yeah, that is soul sucking because we're not really trained to tap into ourselves. Right. Can you give just for people who are still maybe a little unfamiliar with what we really mean when we say this term, can you give a few more? I mean, her book, you guys, you have to grab it. Emotional labor is chalked full of like case studies and examples of this, but can you give us a few, like your top one or two that you feel like are really easily digestible for others to really understand what this is? Of course. So honestly, the easiest way to first think about it is in, in work situations where emotional labor is really the central part of the job. So if you think of, let's say, a nurse having a good bedside manner, that's someone who's going to be really good at making you feel good as the patient. She is, her work is in huge part, not just, in huge part about making you feel good, having a positive experience in the hospital, let's say. It's also the work of servers. So when you decide whether or not to tip in America, you're going to not so much think of, did they bring the plates on time and did I get my meal? It's also hugely going to be about whether that server created a positive experience for you. Was it enjoyable? To be honest, that's a lot of why we even go out to restaurants and bars, because we like to have an experience created for us. That's emotional labor. It's obviously the work of nannies and mums, you know, who are not just caring for the kids, thinking about how they're going to create positive environments for kids. But also if you think about emotional literacy is such a huge part of emotional labor in those kinds of settings where you're helping people do the work of their own emotions, decipher what they're going through, have language for the kinds of emotions they're going through. You're putting yourself to work for not just the emotional experience of the other person, but in that case, the emotional development of the other person. You know, in private settings, I've sort of naturally gone over to private settings with the idea of parenting and childcare. It's not just 
you know, checking in with a partner or a family member, a child at the end of the day and seeing how their day was and putting yourself on hold to really contain them emotionally. It's doing all of the work of, you th- You talked about preemptive thoughtfulness, preemptive thoughtfulness that is going to cater to their well-being. So not just cooking a meal and not just even thinking of a good meal to cook, but thinking of a meal that people will enjoy. You know, yeah. again, thinking about the experience of the meal, thinking about allergies and preferences. Also a lot of the time, the emotional labor that as women were expected to provide in private settings is about, you know, it's, it's health. We take charge, not just of our own health, but of the health of people around us, including adult partners who maybe need to be reminded to take X, Y, and Z medication. As you know, because you read the book, there are these studies that show that, this is a bit grim, we'll go into happy- Hit us with it. (laughs) Um, You know, in heterosexual partnerships, when a partner suddenly loses their other romantic partner, men who that happens to, who become- widowers, widows, Mm -hmm. suddenly their their mortality drastically increases. Whereas women who suddenly lose a male partner and become widows, their mortality isn't affected. And that really shows you that the loss of a partner is is not just a a terrible shock, but decreases your your ability to survive. And that is tied to that emotional labor of, of presumably helping your partner, your significant other survive in a very real way. Yeah. It's emotional and physical. I mean, this is this other big piece too. Like, and when I, well, I listened to the audible. So you told me that when I was listening to the book and I think every woman here um, is like, yeah, that makes sense. And we all have those people like, you know, grandparents or couples who are maybe older in age. And we're like, well, if she dies, he's fucked. He's going to be behind her right away. But if he dies, yeah, she'll be all right. She's got the grandkids. She's got, but we all, we've all said it like, God, let's hope, let's hope he goes first because it is that Rose. And like, it's not condemning men. I think, yes, there is this conditioning and little kids are taught to be even playing with my daughters. It was like, oh, let's play waitress and let's play grocery store and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, why does she have to have a smile? You know, and all like to your point with the servers, that one really hit. It was like, because I think too, when they drop the check, they make eye contact and they're like, thank you so much. You know, like they're really laying it on thick, but it's because they need the tip. Like, I mean, they, this is their livelihood and they are, they are trying so hard. You know, they don't care. They want you to get up so they can turn the table and make money to pay rent. And that's fine, but they're not allowed to act that way. They are allowed to pretend or they're expected to pretend like you're besties and you were over at her house for dinner and she's so sad you're leaving. No, that's not the case. I mean, the real hardship of, I mean, there's so many hardships to emotional labor, but the hardship of emotional labor within our current very hypocritical system that requires so many of us to do it, but refuses to acknowledge we have to do it is in spite of the fact that emotional labor is the central skill to so many of these service sector, pink collar industry, you know, jobs, we're basically boxing women into pretending to be authentic. So that's the kind of, that's that's one of the insane, but like really infuriating to me um, hypocrisies that we have to do this emotional labor, but we have to pretend we're gen- genuine while doing it. So the server, of course, they don't really care about how the rest of your day is going to go. But as you say, they are dependent on the tips. So they have to pretend that they're genuine. And if they're not seen as genuine, we might judge them. But actually, 
in a world where we acknowledge this form of work and value it, the hypocrisy and the kind of double binds and the very, you know, these very narrow, these very narrow lanes that we're forced to navigate disappear. And we can actually be honest about these exchanges that are taking place. Yeah, I love that. I wanted to ask you too about one of your chapters, which is titled, What About the Men? And we know that men carry emotional labor as well, but it is disproportionately kind of, I feel like expected of women and conditioned in women. So why don't you shed a little light on here? Because I do think ultimately what your writing does is want to carry us to a better place. And the men are going to be a big piece of that. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what about the men? Like, what should the men be doing? What can we do? Do Is it our job? to then educate them on this, like give them a copy of your book? Like, what do we do with the men? So the first thing that's so important to know, and I actually put it in my first chapter because I really wanted to make sure to tackle that immediately. But the mortality, right? Or that for men, yeah, yeah they're I, suffering too. Exactly. But, but also that men are equally able to do emotional labor. So men, women- Say maybe, that again, Rose. <laughs> Men are equally, men and women are equally able to express and, and feel empathy, and they're equally able to perform emotional labor. Studies show that empathy might be seen as more feminine, but if given the right motivation, men can be just as extraordinarily empathetic as women. It's just that in our current patriarchal society, men are not rewarded for being empathetic, thoughtful, altruistic beings, they are told they have to be dominant and aggressive and competitive and able to do things on their own. And women are told that if they're going to be good girls, they have to constantly be putting other people first and constantly doing emotional labor, but never telling people they're doing emotional labor. Smile, but never tell me that you're not actually, you don't actually want to smile. Anyway, that's what we just went through. Yeah. So what about the men? Men are dying, you know, so as you said. Yeah. Mortality rate, the average age of death in this country has been falling since a few years before the pandemic started. It's actually not tied to COVID. I think some people think it is. And the reason the average age of death, very sadly, in this country is falling is in large part because of predominantly male deaths of desperation. And male deaths of desperation, that's drug use, alcohol use, loneliness that leads to suicide. These are, are really kind of terrible things. And as a feminist writer and journalist, when I write about gender issues, men will often write to me and say, well, what about the men? You know, you're centering women, but what about the men? The truth is valuing and seeing emotional labor is just as important, if not more important for men and their survival than for women. This is a book that is not just condemning men. It's trying to explain this set of values and skills and say, this has value and men, you should learn how to do it. And what does learning how to do it mean? It means, I talked about emotional literacy earlier. It means, you know, if you have boys, boys being encouraged to develop a broad emotional language, a broad understanding of their inner worlds so that they can communicate their inner worlds to the outside world. And then also, and I guess I'll stop there because there's a so much to say. Yeah. But I think we teach men selfishness, boys and men selfishness in a way we don't teach that to women. And it might seem like selfishness is going to end up benefiting boys and then men. But actually, the reason I brought up deaths of desperation is ultimately isolation 
which is what selfishness leads to, is terrible for everyone involved, especially men. Yeah, I love that, Rose. You're so right. And we both are huge fans of Fair Play, Eve Rodsky's book. And in that, you know, I had the privilege of meeting her and going to her documentary screening and all of that. And I mean, her book is a game changer. You guys, Fair Play, check it out if you haven't already read it or have the deck of cards. But I think too, there was a light bulb moment for me um, in my marriage because I had Delilah, my firstborn was like probably nine months, maybe a year old. And um, I liked doing everything because I was a control freak because, you know, I never felt safe, I think, growing up. And so as an adult woman, I took pride in this type A, no bullshit, I'm going to do it. Nobody could do it better than me. And my husband, I think was totally fine with that because I think he grew up where you know, he didn't, I mean, his parents did everything for him. You know what I mean? Like on some level, he's going to listen to this and he knows what I mean. But I think I got to a point where I had realized I'd created a prison for myself of doing everything because here I was wanting him to help with the baby and all this stuff. And why would he? Like, I I never even gave him that opportunity. And as my, the demand on me kept growing, and then I got to this place of coaching and really like that's heavy emotional labor. You know what I mean? Like it's a lot. And I didn't have a lot left in the tank to give a shit who went to Costco or who tucked in the girls, you know, really. I mean, it was like, nope, go ahead, do some of the stuff. I don't care if their hair's in knots. And what I've seen over the last few years of him really be able, me getting out of the way so he can step in is a whole different person that has been able to flourish. Because I think a lot of times when we're doing everything, we're signaling to them that they can't do it. They're not worthy to do it. They're not going to do it as well. So just sit over there. You can just be this ornament in this house and we really don't need you. And like men, to your point, like they don't want to feel like they're not needed. And so I think that it's not about nagging them to do more or, you know, it's just feminism and it's right to have an egalitarian household and you should be pulling your weight. Like that's part of it. But like we're robbing them of the opportunity to have these deep relationships with their children, with their neighbors, with the people who are the support system around the house, if we're doing everything, right? Totally, totally. I mean, you know, in a in a positive partnership where growth is possible, and, and I really do believe that those partnerships exist. I think I'm in one, it sounds like you're in one. Yeah. Exactly, you've got to provide that opportunity and space. And you've also, you know, there's a lot of undoing work that we have to do on ourselves to understand that we've effectively been socialized to think that our only value is if we fulfill all of these impossible metrics of being good women, good wives, good mothers, good partners, good community members, all of that. And any kind of failure to be all of these great things makes us feel like we're less than. And to be honest, Some people do treat us like we're less than if we're not fully showing up to all of the things, but we've got got to give ourselves permission to not be all of those things because it's simply impossible. We know it's impossible. Men aren't those things and definitely share. And, you know, that's the exciting part of all of this is there's so much opportunity to rewrite narratives in ways that are empowering to women and also to men. Yeah. You know, we don't, I love that. And I think it's easier to just go have wine with your girlfriends and bitch about your husbands that they're lazy or they don't get it. And like, that's not it. Like, you know, I'm not here to say that I never participated in those in the past, you know, and, but it's not that like, that is a reflection of me 
when I'm sitting here complaining about that. I am contributing to this. And yes, there are some extenuating circumstances. And I think professional environments are very different. But in the household, I really do feel like we're kind of making our bed here. And then we're pointing at our husbands, calling them lazy, but we're not, you know, really having these deep conversations about the needs that are underlying those requests. And so that's why books like this, you guys, she spent over seven years researching this. So like, this is clearly something she knows every angle of, which is incredible. I do want to ask you, because I am in this kind of like spiritual space of this idea of feminine and masculine energy, because for some reason, it's really bugging me, especially maybe even on social media, there's a lot of these like, you know, big truck driving asshole guys like, oh, she needs to be in her feminine. And if you're not hyper-masculine, then she's going to become masculine and you're going to, you know, be castrated, all this stuff. And I really, I'm in my mind, Rose, I feel like there's no such thing as masculine and feminine energy. It's just a patriarchal confine that's impressed upon us because then what is that energy? It feels like that energy is being agreeable and nurturing. So, but that's just my opinion, but I would love to get your very deeply educated insight on how you feel about that kind of separation of like divine energy. You know, I'm, I'm fine with some of the, that separation if we're not creating a hierarchy. I think that a lot of the time what these men and women are referring to is the idea of knowing your place and women performing submission and men being able to dominate or literally just put themselves first and do whatever they want. And that's to me where you lose me and I disagree. But if we want to go with the cultural constructs of you know, for example, emotional labor being seen as more feminine and let's say cutting down a tree as an activity being seen as a masculine, you know, form of energy and skill set and activity. I'm, I'm fine with that. As long as you're not, I, I'm not fine with using these tropes to basically be telling women and girls, know your place shut up and and make me a sandwich that is a hard no there is nothing hardwired in us as women that tells us that we should be making a sandwich and there is nothing hardwired in a man that dictates that they should have a sandwich made for them that is absurd and ridiculous and insulting and reductive to all genders involved. I agree. And the thing is too, the, the expectations, the the feminine energy or whatever of like the, the tidy household or being sexy all the time, that's something that, you know, is can be an expectation 24 seven. And the expectation of men to like build a house with their bare hands or cut down a tree or go kill dinner, it's coincidentally not something that they could do right now. Right. So that's, I think what burns me is it feels so imbalanced. It's like, okay, well, if we're going to play this game of role playing, then you go out and hunt dinner, you know, like while I cuddle the kids and go through, you know, like their homework with them. It's just, it's totally lopsided. It's very convenient for these male quote unquote, you know, thought leaders or these very outspoken voices on social media to try to reinforce that. And it just feels like a patriarchal trap. Totally. I think, I mean, I think what you're part of what you're so perfectly referring to is the fact that we've evolved away from some of the traditional patriarchal norms that I would still probably criticize, regardless where we are right now, as you say, is very lopsided. And whereas we've had to a certain degree, 
our own gender revolution in terms of what we can now do because it's not about physical strength or you know we're not living in the wild I'm in a city right now you know I can just walk to the corner store with my income and provide for myself but obviously has not been a mirror so there's been a revolution for women in terms of of how we're able to provide for ourselves how we're able to show up in a way that to be honest we've actually been doing for quite a long time and there has just not been a mirror revolution when it comes to men and I think a lot of people who are thinking about this whether it's on social media or from a policy perspective are thinking about let's just double down on on masculinity and let's just double down on this idea honestly that always takes you back to a hierarchy of a man is should be the head of the household. The reason everything is wrong is because he's not the head of the household anymore. That is that is absolutely not true. I so strongly believe that what is the problem right now is actually, even if we have made all this progress, we have never insisted on feminine types skills being valued. We've never insisted on empathy, care, connection, meaning being centered in the way that they should be centered, including from a value perspective. And that is extraordinarily alienating, especially to men and actually doubling down on isolation, alienation, domination is the opposite of a good idea. Was that the solution, Rose? How do we how do we fix this? How do we begin to bridge the gap? You started out, you know, with like, we need to let men in and we need to obviously, especially if we're child rearing, you know, like give them the kind of emotional literacy that they need. But if there were like maybe one or two things a listener could do in their life, or maybe look at in their life to evaluate and try to contribute to like, it's going to take a long time to turn this boat around. Right. But like, we, I like to give people actionable things of like, here's something that I can do in my life today. And maybe it's just awareness, but I would love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, I think the, the big ones for me, are visibility and value. And so the visibility component obviously has to start with yourself. You know, you might be a huge emotional laborer in your own life and understanding that what you're doing has huge value and impact hopefully can be to a certain degree empowering, but then you can also start to decide the boundaries that you want to place around this kind of work. And, you know, when does it feel fair and when does it not necessarily feel fair? And when is that a renegotiation opportunity, for example, with your partner, or when is that, to be honest, and, you know, I, I am, I'm a straight woman in a happy relationship with a man, but I do think that we have normalized emotional neglect. In some cases, we've normalized emotional abuse in straight dynamics tied to this massive inequality in emotional labor, where one partner in a straight dynamic, one male partners are not expected to show up emotionally. They're not expected to put the community's needs on the same level as their own needs. They put there, there, there's a training that we all go through where male needs are put above the rest of our needs. And ideally in a fair partnership that all gets negotiated and renegotiated and it's a constant ongoing conversation and it needn't be perfectly 50, 50, you know, you talked about the play method. There's a lot of, of ways in which this can, this can happen where if my strength is I'm a, thoughtful, empathetic person who does like to care for others, as long as that's been valued within, let's say, a private household as part of the exchanges taking place, you don't necessarily need to get perfect 50 back. You know, it needs to be seen and it needs to be valued. And in the workplace, 
which we haven't gotten to as much, you know, in the workplace, often emotional labor is tied to double standards. Women in white collar settings are expected to not just be competent and confident to get ahead. They're expected to do an added shift of emotional labor. They're expected to be very agreeable. They're expected often to be quote unquote organizational wives. They're expected to be pleasant and constantly remembering everyone's names and their kids' names and all that in ways that men are definitely not. So in workplaces, honestly, HR departments have to start understanding these double standards. And because emotional labor is not just something that we need to get rid of, it's actually very valuable. We need to figure out ways to start rewarding the people who are doing emotional labor the most. Often we think about leaders and we talk about emotional intelligence, but we don't necessarily look to all of the people beneath the leaders who are doing a lot of that emotional labor, putting emotional intelligence into action in a way that's making organizations better, workplaces much more agreeable, et cetera. No, I love that. I know there's like, I might need to have you back just to talk about the professional angle of it because it's so huge. And, and the, you know, um, the repercussions that happen when women drop the emotional labor, like I had a client who had a colleague really mess up and they lost a bunch of funding and it was communicated in an email and she replied back, this is unacceptable. And guess what? Two days later, she was fired. Like it was just too blunt. You're not allowed to do that. And I've had other women be told you need to sugarcoat it. I've had them be told you need to stroke his ego a bit. Like, I mean, what fucking year are we in? Like it's bananas, Rose. And and there there's very, very real like repercussions that happen when you try to drop the emotional labor at work. A hundred percent. You know, I think so. 10 years ago, I think is when Lean In came, it, came out, the book telling us effectively the message felt like it was women. If you're not getting ahead, it's kind of on you. You're too apologetic. You need to emulate your male coworkers who think the corner office belongs to you. And so, you know, go into that meeting and be ballsy and quote unquote ballsy and, you know, speak up and that's how you're going to rise up. And of course, so many of us who've been in any kind of work setting who might have that intuition to do that, know that it's very, very rarely something that gets rewarded. If you are a woman or actually a minority, you're expected to quote unquote, know your place. And you have to be very careful about how you come across. You have to do the kind of kissing of the ring, stroking the ego that you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's sad, but I, I kind of wish collectively, like, I know that the solution isn't having emotional labor cease to exist because I don't think, you know, it's good for society. I don't think it's good for everybody. I think it is spreading it around a little bit and not feeling like you're the only one because you said to this like emotional neglect. And I think that goes both ways. Like, I think if women are completely drained from these additional shifts of emotional labor, guess what? You don't want to talk to your husband at night. He's just some dude on the couch and you got nothing left in the tank. So like, bringing him in and sharing it and letting him or whoever it is be a bigger support and take on some of that emotional labor and communicating that is going to benefit them because otherwise it could end in emotional neglect for them, right? 100%. That I was recently introduced to a term called revenge time, which uh, really resonated with me. A few years ago, I was working as a, you know, as a server, as a, I guess I was a waitress. I remember like the, the, at the end of the night, the emotional labor that I had just provided for 
eight, nine, 10 hours straight. It was being on your feet as a waitress, of course, is extremely tiring, but it was the, the, the emotional labor component that was like so draining. And I would get home and I had to have this revenge time for myself where I would go into myself to, to recharge, you know, and, and that was fine. I was single. I was a young, you know, woman in New York, but as you get older and you have all of these people reliant on you, who you actually want to be providing emotional labor and care mm-hmm. and loving environment for, if you're having to come home and you're just completely flattened by work that you've done that's barely been recognized, that's certainly been underpaid, yeah, it's definitely not in anyone's, anyone's interest. Yeah. And, and as I'm so glad you did mention very quickly that emotional labor is not something we should do do away with. It's something that needs to be seen, valued, and spread spread across much more evenly. We can't continue to carry it for everyone. Yeah. And I think just to your point, I think there's like, there's so many great examples, but I, I think just hosting people at your home is a big one too, of just like, what are they going to want? Anticipating all the stuff like, listen, ladies, one little thing, whether it's a play date you're having or people coming over to your house, like if you can just have that awareness that you can't read their minds, you don't know what they want. If you can just do something nice, something that feels comfortable to you, everybody's going to be fine. And you're going to have more gas in the tank for the conversation or to be a supportive ear to them while they're there. Like that's the value. It's not making sure you have eight different types of gluten-free crackers for people who might or might not need them. Like we don't need to be doing that. Totally. And so that exactly, as you say, that comes with giving yourself permission to do that. And actually, frankly, then you're modeling it for the others, yeah. you know, who come who come around, who think they've had such a wonderful time and who don't think they have to be the absolute perfect hostess who's got, you know, everything, you know, absolutely planned out and yeah. endlessly perfect. Right. I love it. Your work is so important. I am so like proud and glad to have you out on the front lines talking about this. You've done great press about it. Your book is incredible. Everybody pick it up. Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work, Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Your Power by the brilliant Rose Hackman. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.